From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Emerson Sykes, a staff attorney here at the ACLU and your host. In the current political context, where we are inundated with seemingly unprecedented crises and scandals on an almost daily basis, it's important to remember that some of America's oldest problems persist. Today, we're focusing on indigenous justice and organizing for social change in indigenous communities. Among the many legacies of American genocide and marginalization, Native Americans have the highest rates of unemployment and poverty among all minority groups, with the poverty rate at nearly 40% on reservations. And indigenous women are far more likely to experience violence. Four out of five indigenous women have experienced violence in some form, and nearly one out of two have experienced sexual violence. On this week's show, we're joined by two of my phenomenal colleagues who work on indigenous justice for the ACLU of Montana. We'll start out by talking with Meg Singer, who is the Indigenous Justice Program Manager at the ACLU of Montana and was previously a community organizer at Standing Rock. Later, we'll speak with Lillian Alvernaz, the ACLU's first Indigenous Justice Legal Fellow, about her litigation docket and passion for empowering and protecting Indigenous women from violence. Meg Singer, thanks very much for joining us today. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Meg, we're speaking to you, I think, from your office in Montana. Can you start out by telling us a little bit about the history of the place where you live and work, and particularly with regard to the indigenous communities, Montana? Absolutely. I'm here in our office in Helena, Montana, which is the capital of Montana, and it is settled along Lewis and Clark County. So the history of Montana is that before contact with European or American settlers, indigenous people lived here since time immemorial. Some of the tribes and the nations that are within the boundaries of Montana are found on the seven different reservations in our state. We have 12 federally recognized tribes and one state recognized tribe. There are urban areas that populate Montana, and there are a lot of indigenous people that live in these urban areas. One of the greatest things that Montana has to offer is the beauty of the land. This is the big sky country, and it's even more beautiful when you learn about the traditional indigenous knowledges that these nations have. They have been stewards of the land. They've been taking care of the waters. They have been taking care of the animals, they've been taking care of each other. So it's wonderful to see that in the living landscape that is Montana for Indigenous people. Well, it's helpful to have that background. And I wonder if you can just orient us in terms of what do you mean when you talk about Indigenous justice? Is it the same as Indigenous rights or is there a particular set of issues that you're looking to address when you say Indigenous justice? That's a great question. Our program itself is very new. It's very small, but we are rambunctious. We have an Indigenous legal fellow in Lillian Albernez who is looking at federal litigation and working with lawyers across the country who are looking for justice in the legal system. Then we have organizing, which is reaching out to the people and, and looking to the people and saying, what are the things that are most important to you to fight for? What are the resources that you need to make a better life for your family, for your community? So when this program started in late 2016, 
our program went across the entire state of Montana and just talked to people about what they thought their rights were, what was going on in their communities, what were the issues that they were seeing. And time after time across the entire state, people wanted to talk about the youth and making sure that their education was what they wanted to see. For Indigenous people, there has been a history of and a legacy of public education as a form of assimilation. In the 1800s and late 1800s, boarding schools started popping up everywhere. And this was the settler state, the federal government's response to dealing with American Indians. And that legacy is found in our public education system today, where we only see only certain types of knowledges that are valued or that are taught. And for Indigenous people, we had methodologies and epistemologies that through contact with European settlers were taken from us, were forbidden, were made illegal. And so when we're talking about justice, it's not only working on the things that will make our lives better, but it's also really strengthening the power and the knowledges that we have always had on this continent throughout generation and generation and making sure that those don't go. And for us, it's to really just help ensure that the people who are doing the work, the ones who are on the ground, are able to get the momentum that they need to. If something hops up, you know, we have legal here, we have organizing power, we have donor power, we have volunteer power, we have communications power of getting people's stories out. So that way it's not brushed to the side or forgotten as it often does when you're trying to take it to the man. Well, I want to hear more about your sort of role in the broader movement, but you brought up one of the big priorities for you and your team in terms of justice in Montana is around education equity. So can you talk about some of the students' experiences that you've worked with and maybe one or two examples of students that you've tried to help and in what circumstances? Yeah, I'll talk about my favorite student. Uh, her name is Ruth Forstar, and she lives up on the Fort Peck Indian Reservation, which is the north east corner of the state. So it's really close to North Dakota. It's really close to Canada. It's not close to anything else, really. <laughs> it's very, very rural. So Ruth, I met actually her grandmother as part of the issues that these parents and guardians, we had coalesced a group around educational equity in this school district. And these parents were meeting and Luella who is Ruth's grandmother. She started telling me a little bit about Ruth and the issues that she was going through. And it just happened that Ruth needed to use volunteer hours to get credit for school. So we were able to work it out that she could volunteer with me as we did events around the reservation and talk with people about education. So she was our first intern for our program and she killed it. She was able to talk with public school officials about what she wanted to see that could have helped her. She emphasizes a lot of making sure that culture is into the curriculum, using language, using Native epistemologies. She loves to focus on mental health and making sure that Native kids have equal access to health care and making sure that the school administration is equipped to deal with things like that. 
And she has talked to tribal elected officials and has told them, like, this is something that we need to be working on together. She has been part of another growing movement of youth in Fort Peck who are looking towards making their school a little bit better, addressing issues that seem to be plaguing their community. There was a New York Times article, and ProPublica article that came out on Ruth and the experiences that she had had. And it just was such a beacon of hope for people in the community to say, like, this has been happening. We've been saying this for a long time, that this isn't how it should be. And now people are, are listening. Well, it's really inspiring to hear Ruth's story and even more importantly, the impact that it's having on her friends and relatives and neighbors. It's amazing. I wonder if you can pinpoint exactly what you mean when you say education equity. I know it sounds like you're talking about a whole lot of things that go into this concept of education equity, but what would a more equitable education system look like in particular? I think in this case, we're looking at that legacy of boarding schools, which is the public education system as it is. Native students and their school and their education are usually solely underfunded with excuse after excuse that there's just not enough money to go around. When we usually as Native people and as citizens of sovereign nations have treaty rights with the federal government that says, hey, educate us. We always have conversations in Fort Peck about the strongest, most amazing body of government is the school board. And we love to talk about how public education is really a cornerstone of democracy. This is the hope that Fort Peck has for educational equity. I think that success looks like a system that really values the cultural importance of what they have and what they've always brought to knowledge It brings me to a question around the sort of alliances that you build in your organizing work. When you're coming in working as the ACLU, how do you build trust? You know, obviously working for the ACU is different than working for an indigenous advocacy group that only focuses on one issue. How do you navigate those types of relationships? I think the most important thing is that as a Native person myself, My parents taught me protocols of what I have to do as a Navajo woman. I make sure while I'm doing my work that I follow those. One of those protocols is when I introduce myself, it's to share what my clans are because everybody has a clan Navajo kinship system. Everybody has a clan. And so I tell people my clans to let them know, you know, we are related and I'm here to be a part of you. Working with the ACLU that has been a traditionally white-led organization and has never focused on indigenous issues like how we are doing with our program. A lot of it is laying the groundwork the right way, making sure that we're listening to people, making sure that all of our work, all that we're trying to do is going to be focused on making sure that this community is heard. And I think that Any organization that goes into Indian country or goes on the reservation should be explicit. You know, say that right there. It's you're driving this. You just tell us what to do. So I've been working with Fort Peck for over two years now and it's family up there. It has become a second home for me. I've been gifted buffalo meat. I've been gifted a blanket as a thank you for the work that I've been doing. And It's just like, yeah, I've been doing this work, but it's all because it's the work that you're telling me to do that you want done. 
I also I love use humor. Native people are just funny people, and you just gotta learn how to be real self-deprecating, and you'll be fine. So that's what how we do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure you have no trouble charming folks, whatever the cultural context. <laughs> But I think it's interesting to hear about how you navigate those relationships and build those linkages with these communities that you're trying to empower and have them realize their goals. Another relationship I can imagine might be a bit challenging, maybe even more challenging, is the relationship with the tribal governments. Mm. You mentioned already treaty law and treaty lands and tribal sovereignty and obviously the sort of legal status of indigenous peoples and tribes is its own body of law. So how much does that factor into your work, the sort of relationships with the tribal governments, which are both representing the tribes, but also in a very real way, government. And therefore, you know, the ACLU spends a lot of time fighting governments of whatever shape or form. Totally. I think the first time I ever went as the ACLU into the tribal council, which is for Fort Peck, it's 12 people that have been elected through democratic process to lead their nation. And the first time I did that, I was really, really nervous because it is like meeting the governor of a state or the president of a nation. Like these are the people that have been called to lead not only the people, but who have power over the land. But I think that one of the greatest things that we were able to do was work with the tribal education department in creating a network of community members who could help each other in filing complaint processes with the school. And so the director of the education tribal department, we went through different tribal policies and they taught me these policies and we taught the community these policies. And so building that relationship with the tribal government was something that was very impactful. Well, it's impressive that you've been able to build all of these different types of relationships with all of these different types of entities. But I can imagine that there must be some times when the ACLU priorities and the community priorities and even the tribal government priorities might not be perfectly aligned. Yeah, I think that's usually the the rule rather than the exception to the rule. <laughs> and I think that that's where it's so important that we have the community organizing because it's really the community's voices that we need and that we should be listening to. And so a lot of that time is just making sure that they have the resources that they need, that they have their questions met and helping them create that vision that they see for themselves. And then it's a responsibility of organizations and tribal entities and governments and people who are in positions of power to sit down, listen, and go, okay, this is what we're going to do. Well, maybe from looking backwards a bit to looking forwards, what are some of the projects you're most excited about? I think that one of the things that I'm most excited about working with Ruth and more of the youth there, we want to see a better world for ourselves. And we want to see a better world for our kids. There's so many generations that have been here. We can't even count. We used to work like this together, traditionally, you know, intertribally, nation to nation, working towards a common goal. And it just feels like we've been doing something that our ancestors have been doing for a really long time. That in itself is what we're trying to create. There is power that indigenous people have, and it's growing. That's what hope looks like. And hopefully that's what justice looks like. Well, I cannot think of a better place to finish than right there. So thank you very much, Meg Singer. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. 
Next, we spoke with Meg's colleague, Lillian Alvernaz, the ACLU's first Indigenous Justice Legal Fellow. Lillian Alvernaz, thanks very much for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Emerson. I'm so grateful to be here. We talked with your colleague Meg about the history of indigenous communities in Montana and the ways in which the legacy of American expansionism is lived today. You were born and raised in Montana, and now you're the first indigenous legal fellow for the ACLU of Montana. Can you tell us about your relationship to this place and your path thus far? Gosh, thank you for such a good question. I think it all started when I was a child, learning from my mother and my grandmother, being around really strong Assiniboine and Sioux women all of my life, but hearing my mom talk about her young relationship with my father and saying she told him she would never leave Montana. And I kind of was confused by it, but as I've grown older, I have understood it. Missoula is in traditional Salish, Bitterroot Salish, and Ponderay territory, but Missoula is closer to my ceremonies in northeastern Montana than I would be anywhere else. And I think it's really important to be connected to your culture, and part of that is definitely the land, if not all of it. It's hard to think about leaving my family and the place where my traditions and ceremonies are. You are now, as I mentioned, the first Indigenous Justice Legal Fellow at the ACLU of Montana, and I'm interested in hearing more about why you decided to pursue a career in law and what is the role of a lawyer in pursuit of Indigenous justice, especially given the sort of complicated questions around jurisdiction and sovereignty with regard to federal, state, and tribal laws, and also the history of distrust between indigenous communities who have had the law used against them for generations. So what does it mean to you to be a lawyer in this movement? It's quite empowering. The reason I came to the law was being a victim advocate for a long time in a border town where we do deal with jurisdictional issues as well as experiencing my own racism. Again, growing up in a border town, hearing people have negative perceptions or understanding of the area tribes and wondering what I could do to change people's perceptions and just why people were really misunderstanding natives and tribes. When you say border town, what does that mean in the Montana context? So in Montana, we are home to seven reservations which are, quote, domestic dependent nations within the state of Montana. And a border town are the towns that border a reservation in any area of Montana. So luckily, I found a place that I love and was able to focus on Indian law throughout law school. And also, I got a joint degree in a Master of Public Administration to kind of find the gaps of law and policy as they affect Native people and specifically Native women, just because, as you know, you can pass a law, something great like the Violence Against Women Act 2013 reauthorizations, which gives tribes special domestic violence jurisdiction over non-Indian offenders, but not every tribe can exercise those, and there's a lot of gaps left behind after that law. So there's a high need, and I'm really grateful to have found that intersection. 
One of the cases that I know that you've worked on is a case about this juxtaposition of reservations and non-reservation land and the interaction between the two. I'm talking about this Herrera versus Wyoming case, which was before the Supreme Court this term. And I know that you had a a chance to go to Washington, D.C. for the argument. But this was a case about a man, Clavin Herrera, a member of the Crow tribe who was hunting in what is now Bighorn National Forest. The federal government says he was hunting illegally on that land, but the Crow signed a treaty with the government in 1868, granting them the right to hunt on, quote, unoccupied lands. So the amicus brief that you helped work on focused on two issues, which I think really highlight some of the tension in this area of law. So the amicus brief first makes an argument about treaty law and whether it's operational today. And then the second part is about the health implications of limiting traditional hunting territories, given the community's poverty and lack of access to healthy food markets. So can you walk us through these sort of two arguments? Because I think they're interesting in plotting out both the treaty law issues, but also the real world implications for indigenous people. Oh, absolutely. So the treaty portion of that amicus brief, it's hard for me to fathom that it would be understood any other way because treaties are the foundation of federal Indian law. Treaties formed the relationship between tribes and the federal government on a formal basis. The government, I think, signed treaties with all but one tribe in the state of Montana. They're really essential to the rights that tribes still possess, as well as the ones that we gave up in exchange for our land hundreds of years ago. And I really encourage tribal members to look back to our treaties to be able to cite to them when dealing with a current issue, education, land, like you said, hunting. It's so important to be able to go back to your treaty and say, here's where the government said, we have a trust responsibility to provide this to this tribal member and this tribe. So treaties are definitely still living documents. They're still relevant. Sure, they're old, but they are the foundational aspect of federal Indian law and the relationship the tribes have with the federal government. It's really interesting because the treaty law is so unique to this area of law. And, you know, in most American law schools, we never even think about these kinds of treaties. It is. It struck me that it wasn't entirely intuitive that this case before the Supreme Court would have arguments about traditional recipes for crow dishes and those sorts of things. Why did you guys decide to include that part of the argument? We think it's really important for tribal members and tribes to be able to point back to their treaties and say, here's how we did it at this time. And part of what the Absaluga, the crow people did at that time was subsistence hunt. And there are several tribal members, including Clavin Herrera, who still practice traditional subsistence hunting for their families and for the tribe. We think it's really important to honor what Clavin was doing, as well as the traditional Absaluga views of subsistence hunting in that area. It's also tied to these broader issues, right? Because these folks hunt in part because it's tradition, but also because they live in what are called food deserts. And they often lack the employment opportunities and the resources to get healthy, fresh food. Yeah, there's a huge movement among several tribes to undertake what's called food sovereignty. And part of that is subsistence hunting. Part of that is traditional gardening. So food sovereignty is definitely a huge movement right now within different tribes. It's really interesting how different areas of law come together under this sort of umbrella of federal Indian law. 
One other example that we've worked on closely together is around the Keystone XL pipeline, which has been proposed to bring crude oil from hubs in Canada to Nebraska going through Montana and South Dakota along the way. We often think about the environmental impact, for good reason, of these types of pipeline projects. But one other angle is around the issue I talked about earlier, which is violence against Indigenous women. Can you talk about how those two are connected? So take, for example, the Bakken oil boom in northeast Montana and North Dakota. So the Bakken set up what are called man camps right outside of the Fort Peck Reservation, and brought in several non-Indian workers. And there were some Indian workers because it's easy to be employed there. It's hard work, certainly, but there's a lot of money involved. So young individuals will work on oil rigs and live in these man camps. So with man camps comes drugs and crime. And in that, some individuals will specifically seek out Native victims or run drugs on the reservation because they understand the jurisdictional loopholes. And each of those things heavily influences violence against Native women and human trafficking. Some of these predators understand the loopholes and will target vulnerable populations. Can you just explain a little bit what that is, that jurisdictional loophole that you're referring to? So this has since changed for the Fort Peck Reservation in particular, All the other reservations, aside from the Confederated Salish and Kootenai of the Flathead, fall under this loophole. So tribes only have jurisdiction over Indians on the reservation for misdemeanors, and they hold concurrent jurisdiction with the federal government for felonies. Tribes have no jurisdiction over non-Indians on the reservation, That is the federal government's jurisdiction. Certain tribes like Fort Peck, they are able to prosecute non-Indian offenders who commit dating violence on a Native American partner on the reservation. One of the other aspects of this issue around the Keystone XL and the reason why I'm involved in it, because I focus on the First Amendment, is the evidence that you have found and that we have found that the government is actually looking to silence dissent. So instead of focusing law enforcement resources on preparing for the risks around the man camps, it seems as though both local and national law enforcement officials are instead preparing for protesters and preparing in ways that we think are problematic with respect to the First Amendment. Can you talk about what kinds of things you found in your state records requests? Yes, it's absolutely fascinating. So, for example, Fish, Wildlife, and Parks specifically said, our efforts will focus more on protest activity. Our primary focus is protest activity, not man camp activity, even though we know how much crime man camp activity brings. And, of course, protesting is not in and of itself a crime. It's not a crime. And it was a startling response that we received, yes. I'm interested in hearing more about what you're excited about between now and the end of your fellowship. Are there any exciting opportunities for advancing Indigenous justice that you're looking to pursue? This is such an exciting time to be doing Indigenous justice because not only are people paying attention to it in a broader sense because of great work done by our allies and organizers like Meg Singer, but within the ACLU itself, there is momentum to do Indigenous justice work. 
Teddy Simon at NorCal or Leanne Howard in New Mexico and various affiliates like Maine getting rid of racist mascots. So it's a really exciting time to be doing this work, and I am so grateful to be a part of it. Specifically in the ACLU of Montana realm, we are heading up to Wolf Point, Montana, which is on the Fort Peck Indian Reservation in a couple weeks to meet with Office of Civil Rights investigators who are looking into a complaint we filed in 2017 for discrimination against Native students by the Wolf Point School District. Some students were not able to complete high school because of discrimination by their teachers or student aides. Some students were kicked off or removed from sports teams for reasons that white students were kept on for. There are numerous incidences of students with disabilities who were disproportionately disciplined because they were Native American and other non-Indian students were not. So I hope that we bring some justice for these families who have had to experience some really traumatic events while trying to get a public education. Well, thanks. It's an important issue that I think doesn't get enough attention. So we're happy to speak with you on the podcast and we'll follow with interest your and Meg's work in Montana and beyond. Thanks very much for joining us, Elaine. Thank you so much. Thanks very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed those conversations with brilliant and inspiring Indigenous women. To learn more about their work, visit www.aclumontana.org. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcast and rate and review the show. We appreciate the feedback. Till next week, peace. Peace.